0: Hi, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor of Icon Church, and before the sermon starts, I just wanted to say a couple things. First is that I hope this sermon is a blessing to you, that it encourages you during this time of uncertainty, uh, and and also pushes you forward in your relationship with Christ. Second, uh, if you want more resources and more information, go to iconchurch.org slash rule for life, and you'll find a ton of resources about this series, and about our church. So God bless and enjoy the message. Hey ICON, Pastor Justin here. Uh, For those of you who are new, my name's Justin and I'm the lead pastor here at ICON. Uh, If this is your first time with us, maybe since Easter, uh, it's great to have you. We are in the middle of a series called A Rule for Life. And in that series, we're building what has been called for many, many centuries, a rule of life. And a rule of life is not a complicated thing. It's simply having a plan for how you are going to grow in your faith, right? So everything in our life requires a plan for it to be successful. Uh, It's April as we record this, uh, which means that you've probably already given up on your New Year's resolution, right? And it probably failed because you didn't have a plan, right? One of my New Year's resolutions was a six pack, and that just was never gonna happen. Uh, and, I, and I had a plan. My plan was work out every day and eat nothing. I, I thought it was a solid plan. Turns out it was a terrible plan. Okay, so whatever it is in our lives that we're trying to grow in, or you know, kind of take advantage of, we have to have a plan in order to make that happen. And our spiritual lives are no different than that. So we are building a rule of life. Which is just a set of practices that we commit ourselves to in order to be able to grow as Christians. Okay? So, we, in the first two weeks, kind of set up the parameters and the idea of what a rule of life is. The next five weeks or so, we are going to be looking at specific spiritual disciplines, or as we call them, relational practices. Okay? So, today, our very first relational practice is reading the Bible. Now, This may seem like the most obvious of all the spiritual practices, and in many ways it is, right? We kind of probably know that this is something that we should be doing even if we don't do it or we don't exactly know how to do it. Now, I wanna direct your attention to our leadership podcast. We do a podcast each and every week that talks about what's going on in our sermon series. And so if you go to iconchurch.org slash leadership podcast, you'll see resources there. In fact, we made a little template um, that can help you make your own rule of life. On that leadership podcast for this sermon, we go through specific ways in which you can study the Bible and read the Bible. So we're going to kind of do a broad look at what it means to read the Bible. But if you want more specific uh, kind of strategies for doing that, go to the Leadership Podcast. Again, iconchurch.org slash leadership podcast, okay? So today, I wanna talk about reading the Bible. This is something that many of us struggle with, some of us really love. Maybe for some of you, you grew up in a home that read the Bible all the time, you're a reader and you love reading. Ancient texts comes very naturally for you. But I would say in our day and age, it's becoming increasingly rare for people to read at all, um, let alone read difficult things like several thousand year old texts. Now, Christians believe that the Bible is the actual word of God, written by humans with human brains in human cultures. And so it has a a very human element to it, but it is the actual word of God and it's meant to be a guide for us, okay? So this whole series, this Rule for Life series, the subtitle is Finding Peace in an Anxious World. And so we're talking about these spiritual disciplines as means by which we might find peace in an all the time anxious world Uh, right now with all the coronavirus stuff and especially anxious world. And so in order to find peace, we need a bunch of elements. And one of them is a guide, right? A guide tells us where we are, a guide tells us where we're going or where we should be going. In fact, anytime I travel, I love to travel with somebody who knows the city that I'm in. Because if I don't know the city, I end up eating bad food and drinking bad drinks and going to very touristy places. The very first time my wife and I ever went to New York City, we had a terrible experience because we had no idea what we were doing, no idea where to go. And uh, remind me to tell you about it sometime because it was hilariously terrible. Every subsequent time, though, it's been great because we did a little research or we had someone with us that told us where to go and what to do, right? This is the work that a guide can do. And this is the work that the scriptures do for us, okay? Now, the Bible is primarily the story of god now this may not be what you've thought of it you may have thought of it as kind of a rule a a list of rules or a thing a bunch of things to do or a bunch of commands a bunch of random stuff but it's really not like if you zoom out to the macro sense the genesis to revelation arc of scripture tells us the story of god and it tells us the story of ourselves okay so God could have just given us a list and kind of sent us on our merry way and said, good luck, but he didn't. He gave us a story that describes himself so that we can see him and know him in the story, right? Which is essentially relational, which is the beginning of our framework for all of these spiritual practices. We talked about uh, the last couple of weeks that these practices are relational, they're formational, and they are missional. Okay, so relational in the sense that these practices are meant to connect us to God, not to be an end unto themselves. They're formational in the sense that they work on us. They work on our soul, they work on our heart. And then third, they're missional in the sense that they then work themselves out into the real world. Okay, so relational, formational, and missional. What we see with the scriptures is they are built to be relational in their very being, in their very organization. They are relational. They are a way in which we can be with God and learn about him. Okay, so this relational aspect, and one of the reasons we call the spiritual disciplines relational practices is because we believe that being in relationship with God is not fundamentally different than being in relationship with other people, right? Many of the same practices that we use to get to know the people in our lives, we can use to get to know God. So, this idea of the Bible being God's story is again, not super different than the way in which we get to know each other. In fact, in my community group right now, we are kind of kind of couple by couple telling stories, telling our own stories that gives us background, gives us information about uh, the other person in a way that isn't just kind of running down our stats, right? So this is a, a great idea for uh, the dating world of which I am thankfully not a part. But if you are on a date and and maybe a first date. I would encourage you, ask questions about the person's story. Tell, get them to tell stories about what it was like to grow up, not just get details of stats about what's their favorite color and what's their dad's name and all that. You need that. Favorite color is very important. But ask for stories because what you got to know is everybody's got some crazy in them. And so if you can get them to tell stories, you'll eventually get to the crazy. And I would just recommend get to the crazy as quickly as possible because that'll just save you a lot of heartache on the back end, okay? Just a little, little dating advice from Uncle Justin, okay? So here's the deal. The story of God is a way in which we get to know God. We see how God acts and we see how God reacts to different human behaviors. And so that tells us a little bit about who he is and how he might act and react in our lives. Okay? When we sit with the scriptures, instead of only trying to learn what it says to do, we should also reflect on what it says about God that we would learn what he cares about, that we would grow to love what he loves and hate what he hates, so that we would know how to relate to him and know how to love him. So, here's what I wanna do with this message. Instead of um, kind of drawing out these ideas from a text, I want you to see how we can do that with a text. So turn to Philippians chapter two. Now I wanted to pick a text at random so that you didn't think i just kind of cherry picked the easiest one that had the relational, formational, missional. So I picked Philippians two because that's what our very own Alona Trofimovich is doing in her Bible study on Fridays on Zoom. You should definitely check it out. And we just so happened to be in Philippians two. So I thought that's a good random verse. And so let's use that one. So Philippians chapter two, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to see how this passage, like most if not all others, has this kind of relational, formational, missional aspect to it. Okay? So Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, So, what is relational about this text? If we were going to this text, just trying to get information, just trying to you know, figure out like what's the kenosis, and what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself, and what is the grasp, you know, all these word studies we can do, super important. Again, on the Leadership Podcast, we talk about different methods uh, of doing Bible study. But one of the first things I want us to do when we come to a text like this one is figure out, what is this telling us about Jesus? What is this telling us about God the Father? What is this, how does this describe the Holy Spirit? What can we know about this Lord and Savior that we claim to follow and believe? And so I would draw our attention uh, to starting in, in verse 5. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? So Jesus. Did not consider his divinity and all of the rights and privileges that come with divinity a thing to be grasped, which means to be held onto, to be clung to, with you know, with no idea or hope of, of being willing to release it, to let it go. It says that's not who Jesus is. Jesus was willing to let go of all the rights and privileges of divinity. He never actually emptied himself of his divinity, but the constant worship and the unlimited power and all that goes along with being in the presence of God, being worshiped by the angels and all of that. Jesus said, I'm willing to let that go. Why? It says he emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is the kind of God that doesn't sit far away on a throne expecting to be worshipped 24-7 without exception. That Jesus was the kind of God who was willing to lay aside all of that for a time to come and humble himself by entering into creation, humbling himself even more by not coming to creation as a king or even a prince, but by entering into a manger in a podunk town in the middle of the Middle East uh, to unknown parents, to live in obscurity, like this is the kind of God we serve. The one who is willing to lower himself, humble himself, humble himself, humble himself to be killed, humble himself to be killed uh, by a cross, what Romans considered to be the lowest form of death. This is the kind of God we serve. The God that would be willing to do that for the sake of his creation. And so, before, you know, moving to the details of like, well, oh, what's this say about the, the cross? What's this say about atonement theory? What's this say about that? Which, all that's good, right? But can we first just sit in the fact that that's who Jesus is? That Jesus is the kind of God who would lower himself in order to serve his people. Who would, would walk away from the worship of heaven in order to love and care for his people. Can we just sit in that for a minute and think about that, that that's the character of our God? Because um, that will remind us why we are with him. It will remind us why we follow him. It will remind us why we love him. It roots our faith. It roots our action in faith in that kind of God and it assures us of his love. I mean that's the kind of emotional relational connection that we need with all people in our lives. I know especially like husbands and wives talk about this. I know we talk about this. Emily and I talk about this. We have to have those emotional connections, those moments to be together to kind of in a sense remind us of like, oh yeah, this is why I love her. Because I get these moments where it's not pragmatic. We're not just kind of dealing with all of our children and dealing with life. But we actually just get to sit and reflect on who each other are. And it roots us. Okay. So it's there in the scriptures for us to experience. Okay. So it's not it's, it's relational, but it's not just relational. It also does something to us. It's formational. Christians believe that we are made in the image of God. We're icons, right? That's why we call ourselves icon. It's a reminder of who we are, right? That we are made in the image of God, that we reflect his character, that we are made to reflect his will. So when we read the scriptures and we see Jesus, that that should tell us a little bit about who we are, right? That That Jesus is the kind of perfect embodiment of the image of God, then we can see in him who God made us to be. Now, beyond that, the scriptures also give us just kind of specific descriptions of who we are. It tells us true things about ourselves that we need to know. So by reading the scriptures, we don't just learn about who God is, but we learn about who we are, right? So when God gives us rules and commandments in the scriptures, they're not random. They're meant to describe the kinds of people we were made to be. So as a father, I get this, right? I give my kids rules, not at random. I mean, I mix in a few randoms just to keep them guessing. But by and large, my rules are meant to either protect them, protect me from them, or to kind of describe for them what it means to be a human, to, to kind of put parameters on their flesh and their sin and their desire. So just the other day, uh, our family went to ocean shores and spent the day at the beach, and it was very, very windy. And so something my kids all desired to do for unknown reasons is to stand directly upwind from my wife and I and throw sand in the air. Now, my kids don't understand physics, they're, they're very dumb, um, but what happens when you throw sand up in the air, upwind from other people, is we get covered in sand. And so, over and over and over, I had to create a rule that said, no throwing sand directly upwind from mommy and daddy. We're literally on an empty beach. I mean, there's like millions of acres of sand, and yet this is where they want to be. It's a very clear rule for a very specific purpose. It's not random. I don't want to be covered in sand. Apparently they want me to be. Okay. So this is, this is how we ought to think of the rules and commands of scripture. That when we see God tell us what we ought to be doing, he is guiding us to be exactly who he made us to be. Now, One of the ways we do this in the scriptures is to look for two big theology words or really just English grammar words um, that we can pay attention to that really matter for us to understand how the scriptures are formational. And that's this. All of those commands in scriptures we might call imperatives, right? They are telling us what we ought to do. But every imperative in scripture is rooted in an indicative, something that is true about us or true about the universe that then kind of logically follows into an imperative. So, the way we might say this is every imperative is rooted in an indicative. Everything we're supposed to do is rooted in something about who we are. So, do is always found in are, okay? So what we want to do is always founded in who we're meant to be. Okay, I'm saying this a million different ways so that you make sure you can get it. Okay, Here's what I do. I want us to see this in the text. Back in Philippians chapter 2, Paul starts in verse 1 saying, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he is rooting us in in our experience in Christ, in our new life in Christ. He's saying, listen, if you are in Christ, you are experiencing this encouragement, this comfort, this participation, this affection, this sympathy, this is what it means to be made new in Christ, right? That's not the only indicative. Go to verse five. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in christ jesus he's saying you have this it's been given to you by christ if you are unified with christ by faith you have been given this mind he says this mind is yours in christ it is yours indicative so he actually sandwiches the imperative which is verses two through four between two indicatives, what it means to be made new in Christ, and then the mind we have in Christ. And then the imperative kind of flows naturally. So what's the imperative? He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, that's a crazy hard command, right? It is crazy hard to count others more significant than ourselves to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit that sounds impossible right so paul goes the only way this is going to happen is if we begin with the indicative begin with what's true about us that you have this mind it is yours in Christ Jesus that is rooted into has been at when you were given a renewed heart You were given this kind of perspective, this mind that is yours in Christ, this perspective on who you are and who the other people around you are. You have encouragement in Christ. You have comfort from his love. You have participation in the spirit. You have this affection and sympathy. It is in you and it is from that that you can live out of and then actually complete his joy by doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit count others more significant than yourselves look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others okay so we need to act there is an imperative but we need to act out of the truth about our character it has to move from the inside out right so again starts with jesus Who is Jesus? What have we been made to be like in Jesus? Paul then reminds us of these things that we have in us that are part of our regenerated heart, our new heart that we've been given in Christ. And then goes, now, act out of that. Do what you're supposed to do, but do so kind of from the inside out, from who you are in Christ, what he's made you to be, now go and do, okay? And that's the missional part of it, right? So we've seen... That verses two through four, this do nothing out of uh, selfish ambition or conceit, consider others more important than yourselves. That's the what. That's the what we're supposed to go and do. And he roots it, again, in who we are in Christ because this is who Jesus is. Here's the thing we have to remember. When action has to stand on its own, apart from our identity in Christ, apart from who Jesus is, it becomes true or worthwhile or worthwhile only relative to outcomes, right? So try and follow me on this. When we disassociate, when we separate action from identity, when we separate what we are to do from who we are to be and more importantly, from who Jesus is, then we tend to think about these actions then this way of living, this way of being relative to what it produces, right? It becomes very pragmatic. Right? So we go, okay, I will tell the truth as long as telling the truth gets me ahead, or I will be faithful to my wife, or I will be a, a good uh, employee at work. I'll be honest at work or work hard at my job, whatever the case, whatever the thing is, as long as it, it kind of nets me the outcome that I think it should. It becomes very pragmatic when it doesn't connect to our identity and it doesn't connect to Christ's identity. Okay, but here's some problems. What do we mean when we say it works, right? So I tell the truth. What does that mean? Does that mean everything should go well for me? What, what outcome, if I tell my boss the truth, should I get a promotion? Should I get a raise? What happens if I don't, right? So when, when our, our behavior becomes judged purely pragmatically, we, have, we kind of get ourselves in a bind because we start to go, well, it, does it work? Well, what does it mean to work? How quickly will it work? What is God's timing in these outcomes? If we have a habit of telling the truth, will that in general bring about good outcomes relative to if we lied all the time? Absolutely. Does that mean that every time you tell the truth, it's going to go well for you? No. Why? Because we live in a broken world. So I can tell the truth and be vulnerable and honest, but that doesn't stop someone else from taking advantage of that honesty, right? So when we separate, the behavior that the scriptures command us to have from the identity that it gives us so that being and that connection to Christ and who he is, things break down really quickly. Our behavior and our commitment to it becomes really fragile. Scripture shows us the logical outcome of our rightly understood identity and just asks us to live that out. Again, God's laws are not random right? He says, this is who you are. It's rooted in the fact that you're an image bearer of Christ. This is who I am. So if this is who I am, then this is who you are. Now just live out of that. We spend the most time on the missional imperatives and for good reason. But when it doesn't flow out of a relationship with God and a rightly ordered identity, it becomes really fragile, right? The best example of this is like with a crash diet. If you just kind of layer on some external rules that you're going to do differently, your diet is going to fail because you're not actually dealing with the habits and the rhythms that are going on inside you, not started here and moved outwards to practices. You've just gone, okay, I'm gonna put these restraints on me and then if it doesn't work and I haven't lost 30 pounds and have visible abs in six hours, then, you know, it failed, right? This is not a good way to think about life. All of what we are out here has its beginning in here. That's why the scriptures begin with who Jesus is and then moves to who we are. And then out of that comes these kind of logical imperatives. Now, the scriptures bring peace to our lives because they are a guide to us. Again, they tell us where we are. They tell us where we should go. They tell us how to see the world around us and God's work in the midst of it right? And without a God, we're lost. We, we kind of flail about hoping that the next thing is going to give us the direction we need, hoping that the next thing is going to tell us who we are in a way that resonates, kind of in a long-term substantive kind of sense. We hope that the next thing is going to give life meaning and make it all make sense to us. The scriptures do that in a way that no other guide can do. Now, before we end, I want us to go back to Philippians 2. Because in verses 5 through 11, Paul brings us back to and really drives us towards the thing that matters the most, that empowers this whole deal, that enables all of it. So go back to Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. Again, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us a story, right? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, again, to be clung to, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, humbled himself even again to death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." This is the gospel story. This is the gospel movement that Christ had to go down before he came up, that Good Friday had to happen before Easter Sunday. This is the path that he blazed for us. This is the path to life. The path to life always begins in death. The path to victory always begins in loss. The path to your preferred future has to begin with you following the commands of Jesus. Here, Paul saying, in order to to experience life, in order to experience the unity that you hope for, you have to what? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. In, In humility, count others more important than yourselves. Again, down before we can go up. That we would experience this kind of self-sacrificing, self-giving action. That on the back end of it only, we will experience the joy and hope and unity of the gospel. Death before life. Sacrifice before victory. This is the path of the gospel. It's the path that Jesus walked for us. One of the things that theologians say about the scriptures is that the scriptures are Christotelic. Telos is the Greek word that says the the kind of purpose or the, the reason for which they exist. That we believe that all of the scriptures have their end in Christ. And we believe that your life is Christotelic, that your story is Christotelic, that the reason for your existence, the very purpose and end for which you were made is to be with Christ, to follow this path that he blazed of death to life, sacrifice, to victory. This is the path that the scriptures show us. This is the guide to the flourishing life that you were made for. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for guiding us. Thank you that you didn't just kind of plop us down on this earth and uh, give us a few rules to live by and send us on our merry way in hopes that we would figure it out. Because we wouldn't. We don't. Each and every day, we, we look around us for guides to tell us who we are, to tell us where we are, to tell us where we're going. And especially in crazy times like this where everything seems uncertain, um, we need a guide. We need someone to tell us who we are and where we are and where we're going. And we need you to lead us by the hand. So God, I, I pray that we would find that guide in the scriptures. That when we go to the Bible, we would learn who you are. We would learn who we are. And we would learn what it means to live that out in our real lives. So God, make the scriptures real to us. Make, op- open our eyes to see them for what they are. And I pray, Lord, most of all, that we would see you in them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.